whatever difficulties you have, whatever disagreements you have, whatever high moments you have, and whatever low moments you have, when you're about to speak, when you're about to launch out, when you're about to say something, look at your spouse and see Jesus standing next to them. And if you do that, you'll be married for a hundred years. Amen? Amen. Amen. Thank you, John. Amen. Uh, also, mark on your calendars, November 4th. That's our first BLG party of the year. Okay? 6 p.m. here. It will be a joint party with the uh, 8 o'clock class. And so you'll hear more about it as we go on, but I wanted to make sure you got your calendars adjusted. All right, we are winding through the book of Acts, and we're coming through the end. Um, and we are in Acts 27, and you know when we left off in Acts uh, 26, we, were, we saw Paul's fifth trial. Five. Five trials. The fifth one that he had now before the Roman governor Festus uh, and the king, the Jewish king Herod Agrippa. We saw that, and we saw at the end of the trial, uh, again, as in all the other four prior trials, the conclusion is we can't find anything that this man has done to violate the law. And in fact, Agrippa says uh, if he has done nothing. And if he had not appealed to Caesar, he sh should have been released. Well, I told you that was hogwash. They could have released him instantaneously. The Roman governor had the authority, but he didn't want to touch it. It was too hot a potato. All right, Paul, he didn't want to antagonize the institutional Jewish community. So instead, he passed the buck and kept him there, even though, again, after two years in prison, handcuffed to a soldier constantly constantly he's still in prison even though they can find no charges and now he's on his way to Rome and I said to you that one of the things that should be impressed upon your heart as we study Acts and we take this under under uh, consideration as I ask you to think about this human being this Paul this great evangelist, the greatest evangelist that the world would ever see, this great missionary who had done nothing but serve God, who for years had given his life to God. And now this is, we're operating in the year 59, which means that we're really talking now that Paul had served God all over the world, persecuted all over the known world for 15, 16, 17 years, however specific number of years it is, it's in that order of magnitude. And now, after been, having been given a vision by the Lord Jesus, you will go to Rome and you will preach on my behalf. After have, having received that vision, he's still in prison for two years. And I ask you, if you were in that position, and you can substitute anything that you're going through, illness, financial distress, family relationship problems, whatever it is, relationship issues with others, 
I don't care what it is. You put it in your heart as to what issues are you're facing in your life. And this man, facing issues, multiplied many times that after having received the vision of Jesus Christ to tell him that you would preach on my behalf in Rome is still in prison, is still suffering, is still handcuffed. Wouldn't you be doubtful? Wouldn't you be depressed? Wouldn't you say, oh God, why are you doing this to me? Why am I going through this? You know that I love you, Lord. Why do I have this illness? Why do I have this sickness? Why do I have this problem with my family? How can this be? You know I love you. You know that I serve you. And the answer is this. The answer is this. When you receive the vision of Jesus Christ, when you actually see Jesus and you have Jesus inside your heart and every part of your body, every molecule of your body is pledged to give it all to Jesus. This is what you can go through and still see the prize. This is the victory that you can have when you know that Jesus is your Lord and you have pledged yourself. This is something that we need to have today. All of us, me first, me first, that I can say, God, please give me the vision. Because without the vision, we fail. We fail. But it's when we have the vision, when we have seen that Jesus, when we have seen him and we incorporated him into our heart, this is what we can go through. And this is how, after all this, after two years of going through five trials and basically being pronounced innocent all the time, he's handcuffed and now he's put on a ship and he's headed to Rome. And so a couple of, of points that I want to make before we start this is this Acts 27 is considered to be one of the great uh, historical narratives about seamanship during this period of time. Those of you who wonder about how accurate Luke is as a historian, I have told you that I consider him to be arguably one of the greatest historians ever. That his work is so accurate that he gives you details that other historians do not give you. You will see in this narrative that not only does he tell you the specific ports that they will go into, he tells you the depth of the ocean. He tells you what side of the islands they sail on. He tells you what direction the winds come from. It's an extraordinary tale. And he tells you the story of how this one short Jewish man in handcuffs under the power of the Holy Spirit is effectively going to take charge of a boat in which he is a prisoner. Nobody would ever believe a story like that. Who would ever believe a story like that? A ship with 276 people on board, and one guy is handcuffed, headed to prison, headed to Rome. And that guy is the guy who effectively will wind up being the captain of the ship? You don't write stories like this. Well, you don't in the world, but you do if you're the Lord. And that's the difference, and that's the lesson. And so this is a, a narrative theology, and it would have been especially attractive to Greeks during this period of time, especially so because they loved Homer and, uh, and Odysseus, and they loved these kinds of stories. And it, this story, which absolutely is true, every word of it is true, we know that through the Holy Spirit, 
and we know that through, through uh, supporting documents, it would have attracted Greeks. It would have attracted Gentiles who read this story. And, and what you're going to see here is that in this voyage, which is supposed to wind up in Rome, because of the winds and because of the difficulty of this trip, they will be, they will be knocked hundreds of miles off in their journey, hundreds of miles off. And eventually, they will be shipwrecked on the Isle of Malta, Malta, which is about 100 miles or so uh, off of Sicily, between Sicily and Africa. They will be shipwrecked there. The ship will come apart. The ship will be destroyed. They will have to hold on to the timbers of the ship, uh, and they will come onto the island. And not one, not one of the 276 people on that ship will die because the vision, the prophecy that Paul was given that none would die, and none died. So this is an extraordinary tale how God supports us in our times of trial. Yes, you're handcuffed. Yes, you're going to prison. Yes, you've been persecuted. Yes, you went through two trials. Yes, you're innocent, but I know you. I know your heart, and I've called you. I've called you. God's called each one of us, all right? Each one of us. So at the point today to remember is, think of this as your call. I don't know what he's called you for. Only you do. But it doesn't matter how difficult it is. God will not abandon you. Amen? Amen. All right, and I want to just give you one other interesting footnote on this as we launch into the story. Uh, I have a very, very dear friend of mine who's a very bright lawyer, devout Catholic, goes to Mass every day. Uh, extremely well-educated, undergraduate, Notre Dame, law school, Georgetown, extremely successful, and a devoted follower of Paul. So a couple of years ago, you know, I said to him, I said, well, I know you really, Chris, I know you really admire Paul. I said, you know, of course, he was shipwrecked. He was shipwrecked in Malta, the Isle of Malta. You know that. Yes, I do know that, he said. I said, what you probably don't know, though, that is not well known, is that as he was foundering in the surf outside of Malta, hundreds of Maltese puppies <laughs> left the island and swam out through the surf, <laughs> grabbed his cloak, and dragged him back to the beach. And my well-educated friend looked at me and said, really? <laughs> and I said, you're scaring me. <laughs> and my wife is a witness. So you got to be careful where you're getting your theology, all right? You got to be careful where you're getting your theology. And so let's begin with uh, verse 1. <clears throat> when it was decided that we would sail for Italy, Paul and some other prisoners were handed over to a centurion named Julius who belonged to the Imperial Regiment. It is amazing this morning that Hayes again stole some of my notes. Um, and, and as he always does that, I don't know how he can do that. But he spoke again uh, about uh, John speaking to the centurions. And many times, you will see in the New Testament, especially in Acts, centurions are spoken of uh, on, a, on a high integrity level. 
They're honorable men. We see that in Cornelius, okay? Uh, we see it with Lysias, the commander, okay, that he had protected Paul. We see it now again with Julius. This man is not a Christian. Julius is not a Christian, but he's a man of integrity. And you're going to see on this voyage how Julius, I believe under the Holy Spirit, protecting Paul, becomes a protector. And so Julius takes Paul uh, under his guard on this ship. And now remember this. This ship, once the centurion is on board, this ship becomes under the authority of the Roman government. The centurion runs this ship. Not the captain, not the pilot, but the centurion. Now, also I want you to realize this, that on this ship, Paul has going to have two traveling companions. There is no other prisoner that will have two traveling companions, as we're going to read that. Uh, we boarded a ship from Adradium, about to sail for ports along the coast of the province of Asia, and we put out to sea. Aristarchus, a Macedonius, Macedonian from Thessalonica, was with us. In other words, Paul has now two traveling companions. Uh, Aristarchus and Luke. They will be his traveling companions. And now I want to say something about these men. I want to say something about what God gives us when we are in difficult times. God gives us godly friends. The reason that you come together here in this BLG, the reason that you're part of this community is that you have gotten together with people that love you and care for you and will go to the nth degree for you because of Jesus. Not because of your winsome personality. Okay? And you do have a winsome personality. But it's not because of your personality. It's because when these people look at you, they see Jesus. They know who you are. And God touches their heart. And so think about it. Think about being two men who just say, this guy's going to Rome. I'm going to spend the next X number of months on this voyage. My life is going to be in danger. There's shipwrecks all the time. And I'm going to give it all up to be his companion. Are you touched by that? I'm, I've read this so many times and it never really uh, got my attention until the Holy Spirit this week really said to me, you need to think about what it means to be a godly friend and what God does. This is what God does for us. And it's really humbling. Yes, yes, he was. He was a believer. So, if, so effectively, now think about it. He's a prisoner. Paul's a prisoner, but he's got two attendants. So immediately... Obviously, it's clear that Paul is a special prisoner. I'm sure it was, a bit, it was clearly evident to everybody. And so verse 3, the next day, we landed at Sidon. And Julius, in kindness to Paul, encircled that, in kindness to Paul, allowed him to go to his friends so that they might provide for his needs. Isn't that amazing? The centurion, who's not a Christian, said... Paul, you can go to your friends here in Sidon and they'll give you what you're going to need for this trip. You think they do that for other prisoners? It's because God intervened. God intervened on this journey. This isn't man's journey. This is God's journey. And so God touched that heart so that he went out and said, you can go. And now we don't know of any church that was ever established in Sidon, but clearly at some point, 
followers of Paul, of Paul, disciples from other churches must have gone there. And these people, out of the kindness of their heart, gave him what he needed for this trip. And what you're going to see on this trip, many of you have, have Bibles that have maps in the back. And if you would, just take a look at those maps. The one that is, Some of you have maps that relate to Paul's missionary journey. And if you look at this, what you're going to see is what happens on this journey is it, it begins almost like a half, a half of a sea. They start out in Caesarea, all right, just, just north of Caesarea, and they will travel up the coastline, all right, and, and they will travel up the coastline because the winds on this journey are prevailing westerly winds. They want to go west, but the winds are coming into their face. They cannot travel, a sail ship cannot travel directly into the wind. So what they're trying to do effectively is tack against the wind. And so they're going to try to make their way up the coastline, curve around against the wind, so that eventually they can get out into the open sea. And you'll see that, that that's what they're doing. And that's why this journey is so difficult, because they don't have an engine. It's a sail ship. And so when you, can't, when you sail, you can't sail directly into the wind, so they're tacking, and it's, a lot of it is going against, on, the, on the coastline, and a lot of times they will try to be on the leeward side of islands, meaning the side of an island that is away from the wind, so again they're protected from the wind and they can advance. You don't realize how hard it was to travel during this period of, period of time when all you had was wind power, all right? And so, from there, verse 4, we put out to sea again and passed to the lee of Cyprus. Isn't that amazing? That's Luke. He's telling you which side of Cyprus, the island Cyprus, they traveled on. They stayed on the, on the lee side, the side against the wind, because the winds were against us. When we had sailed across the open sea off the coast of Cilicia and Pamphylia, and again, this area now is the area of, of, of uh, Turkey, we landed at Myra in Lycia. There, the centurion found an Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy and put us on board. Now, what is this? An Alexandrian ship sailing for Italy. The Roman government, the Roman government owned grain ships, merchant ships, and they used these ships to transport grain from Egypt, corn, because Rome recognized the one thing it had to do to keep peace was it better feed people. And if people weren't fed, there was going to be uprisings and revolutions. So they made it their business, they made it their business to, to make sure that there was constant food. So these grain ships sailed from Egypt. And so now Julius saw this grain ship. It was a much larger ship. It had a better ability to be on the open water. And so he contracted to get these prisoners on board on that on that ship. And so, continuing on, we made slow headway for many days and had difficulty arriving off Snidus when the wind did not allow us to hold our course. They're going headfirst into the wind. They can't hold the course. We sailed to the lee of Crete, all right, opposite Salmoni. When we moved along the coast with difficulty and came to a place called Fairhaven's, near the town of Lycia. Fair Havens, again, is on Crete. So you know where the Isle of Crete is. You look on your map, you'll see it. Crete, 
Okay, Crete is obviously a known place today. Um, and um, that's where they are. This journey now had taken far longer than it should have because of the, of the winds. Verse 9, much time had been lost and sailing had already become dangerous because ne by now it was after the fast. What does that mean? It means it was one of the high holy days uh, uh, of the Jewish people. It was now into September. The fast had ended for the high holy days. Now they were in September looking towards October and it was effectively winter time coming and it was dangerous to sail. Dangerous to sail, dangerous to travel. 276 passengers on board this ship that's going to face danger. And so continuing on it says, so Paul warned them, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to ship and cargo and to our lives also. Now, was that a prophecy? No. No. That was not a prophecy. That was a man at this point, a man at this point who said, I've, I've traveled. I'm experienced. I know what happens when we're on the sea at the bad time. Something very bad is going to happen to us, and I can say this because of my experience. Now, turn, if you would, to 2 Corinthians chapter 11. And this letter written to the Corinthians was written before this event that we're studying. So the point is, well, what kind of experience did our brother Paul have that he could say something like this? 2 Corinthians chapter 11, verse 25. Three times I was beaten with rods. Once I was stoned. Three times I was shipwrecked. I spent a night and a day in the open sea. You think he knew what he was talking about? Okay. Three times I've been shipwrecked. I've been abandoned in the ocean. A day and a half I was out there by myself wrecked. Don't go. This is bad. We're going to lose the ship. People will die. People will die. And so what happens? But the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Now, put an asterisk here. How many times do we, in our life, when we face the biggest decisions that we have to face in our life, what kind of job we're going to take? Where are we going to live? Should we sell our house? Should we buy a house? Our children are getting married. Who they are going to marry? We're going to send our kids to college. What college are we going to go to? Where are we going to live? What should we do? How am I, who am I going to marry? Every single aspect of your life. What do we do? We listen to people. People have good advice. There's professionals out there. Counselors, they've got good advice. We listen to all these people in the world who purport to have good advice. This is what the centurion did. He listened to the pilot and the captain. 
We can go. There's not a problem. I've got experience. And what happens when we venture out in life on all these aspects of our life without getting on our knees and asking the one, well, one entity who has the absolute answer with what we should do with our lives, Jesus and the Lord, when we go out and venture without asking first, what happens to us? Exactly. Disaster. Disaster. And how many times I'm so amazed I see Christians venturing out without asking for prayer, without asking God to intervene. And I, this is an important aspect in this lesson. I want to really underline this. And that is this. Please, folks, your life, whatever you do with the rest of your life, every decision that you make, put it before the Lord. Ask God to intervene. And ask God to close the doors in your life that need to be closed. And I, my prayer is even more than that. I don't want the doors closed. I want them slammed in my face. Amen? Amen? Because the problem is this. In my humanity, you know what I say when I see a door that's closed? Well, maybe it's not. Maybe it's open a little bit. It just requires a little bit of my effort, right? A little bit of my effort, I'll push it open. No, I, what I need and what we need as Christians is to ask God to slam these doors in our face. Is it painful? Yes. Is it hurt? Yes. Our feelings hurt? Yes. But if we've put it before God, it's the answer of God in our life. I have a dear cousin that I was praying for, and we don't want to be like this. I had been praying for him and mentoring him for a couple of years. He was going through difficult times. And it's not my cousin Vic. It's another cousin. I don't want to. <laughs> Vic would never do this. But I have another cousin who I've been praying for, and, and the prayer always was for him, Lord, Close the doors in my life that have to be closed. Close these doors. And we did this prayer for a couple of years. And finally, he said to me one day, Johnny, you always pray for me. I want to pray today. I said, sure. Well, you pray today. And this is what his prayer was. Oh, Lord, those closed doors in my life, I ask you to open them. <laughs> Rich, what are you doing? God closed those doors. You don't go back and ask God to open the doors that he closed. But isn't that what we do? You know, we wake up our mind. I want to do this. I want to go here. I want to go there. I want to be involved with this people. I want to be involved with that person. And we do our own thing. And then what do we do? Then we ask God to stamp us, right? After the fact, God, I know you're going to bless this. Of course, I didn't ask you whether this was your will or not. But now, please bless it. Please, folks, don't do this. Well, if they had listened to him this whole adventure would not have taken place. But instead, they listened to advice from so-called experts. And so that's what happens. And so uh, continuing on, he, he followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix and winter there. This was a harbor in Crete, in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. And by the way, you can go there today and see these places. You can actually go there. You can go to Malta and see what's referred to as St. Paul's Bay. It would make an incredible trip to go and see these kinds of places. Continuing on, verse 13. When a gentle south wind began to blow, and that's the wind we want. We want the south wind. That's the wind. That's the good wind that will allow us to travel west. So now this gentle south wind, ah, oh, this looks good. You see? 
You were wrong, Paul. Obviously, you weren't wired in. Things are good. They thought they had obtained what they wanted. You like that? Circle that. That's us. It's good. This was a smart move. I knew I was right. I knew I'd ask the right people. So they weighed anchor and sailed along the shore of Crete. Then they should put the word however. Before very long, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. And here's what happens, so you understand geographically how this happens. There are mountains in Crete that are seven to 9,000 feet high. And what happens is the wind comes roaring down these mountains. And as it comes roaring down these mountains, it hits the water and ricochets off the water and is magnified. So if you have a puny sailing ship during this period of time, all of a sudden you are being hit by these northeasterly winds that are just unbelievably damaging based on the force coming off the mountains. Northeasters. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind. So we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboats secure. Can you imagine? That's how bad it was. They couldn't even tie up the lifeboats. When the men had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Do you understand what's going on here? Things are so bad that they have to tie the ship together. They have to tie the very planks of the ship together so it doesn't sink. Can you imagine ropes are tied around the ship, both longitudinally and, and latitudinally, to keep this ship together? And now, can you imagine being Paul? You're on this ship. You know that God wanted you to go to Rome. You've been through five trials. You're innocent. You're handcuffed. It would drive me nuts to be handcuffed on a ship that was going down. That, even that is just making the hair on the back of my neck go, go nuts. Can you imagine? I mean, can you imagine what must have been going through his mind? I mean, really, this is just an astonishing, astonishing story. And so when they had hoisted it aboard, they passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together fearing that they would run aground on the sandbars of Citrus. They lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. In other words, they lowered the anchor, not to anchor the ship, but to slow the ship down so they could steer the ship, because they couldn't steer it. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo aboard. Okay, so now, here's our life. We made a mistake. We didn't listen to God. We did our own thing. Now what? Oh, oh, now all these things that had been so precious to me. Overboard. The cargo. Overboard. Out. All the things that I thought were so important to me. Out. Isn't this just like life? It's just like life. And so the cargo goes over first. Then it gets worse. On the third day, what did they do? They threw the ship's tackle overboard. In other words, the very equipment needed to sail the ship. The furniture, over, out, get rid of it. Anything that would in any way weight down the ship, they threw it over with their own hands. When neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, many days, weeks, the ship was battered. And the storm continued raging. We finally 
gave up all hope of being saved. Please circle that. We gave up all, and the word that's missing is human hope. We gave up all human hope of being saved. And what happens when we come to the end of ourselves and God is there and it's God's purpose? God intervenes. God steps up with his man or his woman. And this is an important lesson for us because God is placing each one of you at some point in your life in somebody else's life, in somebody else's experience whose world has collapsed, who has no hope. And now God is calling you folks to be the Paul for these other period, for these other people, and see how we have to act. And this is an example of how Christians act. After the men had gone a long time without food, and this is now, you're talking day upon day upon day, Paul stood up before them and said, and I'm going to stop at that point because what I'm going to tell you is exactly one of the great things about the Bible is that it paints in a true color. It doesn't paint with rose-colored glasses. You know, we would like to be able to see Paul rise up here and be this gracious man who, you know, would go before people and say, you know, say some gracious thing about what's happened here. It's not your fault. This is nature. You didn't know. You did your best. No, no, no. That's not Paul. You understand? That's not us. In our humanity, God takes flawed people. And you're flawed. And I'm flawed. Unbelievably flawed. And so I want you to imagine this five foot two, hook nosed, bald, <laughs> Jewish guy with bow legs in handcuffs and chains standing there and saying, I told you so. If you had only listened to me, we wouldn't be in this mess. Now, if I were Julius the Centurion, I would pick him up and throw him overboard. <laughs> Honestly, I would. I would, because you just have to say to yourself, it's extraordinary. But you see, God shows us the warts, and then he shows us what happens when the Holy Spirit takes over and take someone with warts and uses him. And that's what we want from us. And so look at the whole story. Paul stood up before them and said, Men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have spared yourselves this damage and loss. But then the Holy Spirit takes over. And now it's not him, but now it's God. And now it's the role of the encourager. It's God using you to encourage the world. It's God using you to speak to your neighbor who's in a hospital. It's God using you to speak to a friend who's been given a terrible health sentence, who's got a terrible financial problem. And God uses you. And what happens? But now I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Not one of you will be lost. No one will perish. Only the ship will be destroyed. And how do I know that? I know that because Jesus spoke to me. I saw him. An angel appeared to me. Last night, an angel of the God 
whose I am and whom I serve stood beside me. Amen. You want to see my testimony? You want to know where I stand? You want to know who put me here and whose I am and how I can speak like this even though I'm in handcuffs? Even though I'm handcuffed to this soldier? Even though this ship is going down? Because the angel of God told me last night, do not be afraid, Paul. You must stand trial before Caesar. And God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. Oh, amen. In other words, God has put you someplace in which he's protecting the other people because of you. Because of the heavenly perfume that you have that's scenting around you. God is blessing the other people. And you know this happens. You know this happens. And God uses you to tell the world who has given up all hope, who is lost, who is facing death, that there is hope. And the hope is, in your very testimony, the God whose I am. And when a man could say that in handcuffs, we have to recognize how powerful it is. And by the way, one of the things I want you to realize is the message that God gave him. God didn't say, by the way, Paul, I want you to know, uh, this ship is going to go down. You're going to be saved. Everybody's going to be saved. And you're going to be free. I'm going to put you in a place where you'll be free and you will never have to go and serve a trial. Your, your pain is over. Your persecutions are over. No. No. That wasn't the message. God doesn't say that. No. No. I'm going to deliver you, but you're going to Rome. You're going to go on trial because you are going to deliver my message to the world in Rome. What a, what a story. We're going to stop at this point and continue next week. Let's close in prayer. Heavenly Father, Lord, we are humbled every time we open this book, Lord, and we see the story of these men and women, these giants, Lord, we are humbled and we feel like spiritual pygmies. God, I ask you to embolden us, to give us the faith of these men, Lord, every day to strengthen us so that we can go out in the world and impact the world, Lord, the way you want it impacted. Now, I ask for a special blessing on this class, that you protect them during this week and bring them back safely again next week so that we can, we can continue the study of the word. Lord Jesus, we put all of these requests in your name. Amen. Amen, class. God bless you all. I'll see you next week.